It seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate creative services platform. I'm Jess Guffey, and I'm joined by Catherine and Rooney. Hello, Catherine. <laughs> Good morning, Jessica Nicole nope, Guffey. Not even close. Nope. Well, I guessed. I... <laughs> it's really part, early. The best part is you actually know it too. <laughs> I know I know it. That's why I really tried to shoot. That's going to bother me now. But well, that's not why we're here. That is not why we're here. That is not. But why also, we're here. identity theft is not a joke. So. <laughs> Don't. Well, you just made it into a joke. Sorry, I don't. I shouldn't laugh no, at identity. I'm, I'm serious. I'm I'm dead serious right now. This is no laughing matter. All right, all right, <laughs> calm down. But you know what is a laughing matter? Tell me, Kate. The movie Ghostbusters. Hi, uh, yes, we're back with another mini episode. I'm really digging these mini episodes. I don't know how our listeners feel about them, but they're really just fun. Leave teeny tiny episode for you it's not uh, actually not that small but smaller oh. than the rest of our episodes so <laughs> it's not that small but we're still gonna call it mini so don't worry <laughs> so... <laughs> i'm excited yes. to hear i think this movie is a staple in a lot of people's childhoods i know my parents made us watch it when we were like really little we were scared but we loved it <laughs> so oh, I, it's not sad <laughs> we loved it my sister like thought she was a Ghostbuster, I think, for a while. Aww. So, um, I I love this movie, and I'm excited to hear a little bit more about it. Yes. So this episode is a callback to our previous episode, all about Bill Murray, because he, of course, was a star of this film and really helped carry it. Well, he didn't carry it; it was a whole team, but he was definitely one of the starring cast members. So you mentioned that you watched it as a kid, and were perhaps a little scared, but do you have any other recollections of your experience watching the films? Honestly, I just remember like we turned all the lights off and we made it a really spooky time. And my parents, I just remember them laughing their asses off the entire movie. And I think Mm -hmm. when I first saw it, I was a little too young to pick up on all the nuances. But then when I watched it again as an adult, I was like, oh, my God, this is genius. Like, this is comedy yeah. gold. And you it actually is. see it for what it is. It is comedy gold. I kind of had the same experience. I don't remember being scared, but the entire family was into it. And yes. a lot of the jokes went over my head as a kid. But it was kind of like a family event to watch Ghostbusters. And my brother was into it, too. He thought he was a Ghostbuster. I think Amazing. we made the like homemade uh what are they called proton packs that's not it (laughs) close Close enough close (laughs) enough so today we are covering the making of ghostbusters and just the legacy it created after the fact love it 
Most of my information today came from a wonderful Vanity Fair article by Leslie Bloom called The Making of Ghostbusters, How Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and the Murricane Built the Perfect Comedy. The Murricane. The Murricane. If you haven't listened to the Bill Murray episode and you're just coming into this show, please go back and listen to it. Kate tells a really fun story about her own interaction with Bill Murray, (laughs) and it's just a fun episode. So please go back and listen to that if you enjoy this one. That's right. Bill Murray is famous for having random encounters with fans, and I've had my own encounter with him. So check it out. And as always, all of this is just our own research and our own opinion. So let's dive in because Ghostbusters is kind of the first Hollywood franchise film based off the paranormal. So you think about all these more current films like thrillers and the paranormal has become kind of a big thing in the film scene now, but this was really the first one. But it all came from Dan Aykroyd. He was the brains behind it because he actually really believes in the supernatural and he's built his career basically off of creating content about ghosts and other supernatural elements. Spooky, spooky, spooky. spooky. We should have done this during Halloween, during spooky season. So, I mean, this runs in his family. At one point, he even called it the family business because his family lived on a farmhouse in Ontario, Canada. And they would hold seances there for generations. And his own great-grandfather was a renowned spiritualist. So the family had its own medium to channel souls from the outside. This Can was a big just, deal. Like, talk about the title of renowned spiritualist? <laughs> like, I'm going to start signing my emails. <laughs> that reminds me of Vince McMahon. He liked to call himself creative overlord. Perfect. <laughs> kind of terrible, but kind of great. I like right. it. Now, Dan Aykroyd's grandfather, who was a telephone engineer, investigated the possibility of contacting the dead via radio technology. So this is getting passed on generation to generation. The great grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> and who to thunk? Because, I mean, Dan Aykroyd, you think of him, you think of comedy and movies and TV and all that stuff. But Totally. This is a big part of his life. His own father, in fact, authored a very well-regarded history of ghosts, which, and like, so he's documenting ghosts in his experience and claims that strange lights halo his daughter in photographs. I don't know, Kate. I I believe in some of that stuff. Maybe not all of it, but I believe in some of it, I would say. Okay, so I kind of chuckled at the strange lights and photographs. Like, that stuff, I'm always like, mm. Yeah, agreed. Especially, I mean, I think it's different nowadays, too, because working for a design company, having been a designer for a lot of my career, it's so easy to Photoshop stuff. So I'm very skeptical about all of that. But, yeah, I think there might be something out there. Who knows? There's, There's vibes. Totally. It's a vibe. There's a vibe. You know? It's a vibe. <laughs> I mean, beyond that, though, like, I love Supernatural. So I, whether or not I believe it, I just think it's, like, entertaining and fun. So. Agreed. So this whole uh, Supernatural family, or all of this stuff carried on into Dan Aykroyd's career. And he was a very good storyteller, obviously, with his writing abilities and his comedy writing. But it 
perhaps came from his family and they're just passing down generations of ghost stories and telling stories that way. So one day while sitting around the family farmhouse, Dan Aykroyd says that he read an article in a parapsychology journal, which of course they have that lying around their house. Of course. And <laughs> yeah. And he got the idea about trapping ghosts. So mm. this kind of sparked the idea in his head. And he said, I thought I'll devise a system to trap ghosts and marry it to the old ghost films of the 1930s. Virtually every comedy team did a ghost movie, Abbott Costello, Bob Hope. I was a big fan of them. And he just began hammering out the screenplay, keeping all of this in mind. Something about trapping ghosts. I never knew any of this, so I'm loving Uh this. (laughs) Now, the film was originally written for Dan Aykroyd himself and for John Belushi, but of course had to be changed when John Belushi died of a drug overdose in 1982. But the screenplay that eventually became Ghostbusters did have like an homage to Belushi. The famous ghost Slimer, green goblin guy over here, he was allegedly based off John Belushi's body. And Dan Dan Aykroyd said, I will admit to having inspiration along those lines. Oh my God. (laughs) Slimer. We had a lot of Slimer toys in my house growing up. Slimer was the best. Now, what I thought was super interesting is this film almost didn't become reality because it was considered to be a huge risk to make. Former Columbia chairman Frank Price greenlit the project after Ivan Reitman approached him with a budget of $25 million. And Frank Price said, wisdom in town was that I had made a terrible mistake. Because, I mean, this number that Reitman just kind of like came up with out of thin air, it was three times the amount that Stripes took and like it was just a lot especially for a comedy so setting off a lot of alarm bells for frank price's bosses they were like um what we've never spent that much for a comedy that's insane so then the president and ceo of columbia pictures sent over his top lawyer from new york city to talk frank price out of the project because it was just way too risky way too expensive but you know what frank price says i've got bill murray (laughs) so that's like we're good. We're cool. There it is. But they still made it really clear that it was Frank Price's responsibility and his neck was on the line. So they slated Ghostbusters for a major summer release in 1984. And that gave Reitman and the Ghostbusters team just one year to write it, to shoot it, and edit the first big budget, big effects film any of them had ever attempted. Oh, boy. A year. That's Whoopsies. not very long in the film industry. No. Oh, I, I I wanted to mention this earlier, but after doing all this research, I swear it felt like it felt relatable to a startup environment of, okay, we have a year, we got to launch this, we have a tight budget, let's go. Let's yeah. let's get scrappy here and we'll we'll see that kind of throughout. But the original script was very different from what we now see today. Dan Aykroyd presented the script to Ivan Reitman, the director, and said it was a screenplay that was impossible to make, but one that had brilliant ideas behind it. And this original script was a lot darker than the version that was shot. It took place in the future and on a bunch of different planets and different dimensional (laughs) planes. Yeah, it was like... All these ideas just pouring out of Dan Aykroyd's head. It's like, are you okay, sir? Uh, 
<laughs> there were some elements in it that would make it onto the big screen, like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Ugh. And I know. Uh, <laughs> and what would become the famous Ghostbusters logo, the ghost trapped in the red or circle stop symbol. As I say this right now, I just had a recovered memory. <laughs> oh, my God. My favorite <laughs> no, kinds just, of memories. Uh, I, when I worked at a hotel many, many years ago, we did a pumpkin carving contest within the company. And my team did a Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man pumpkin. <laughs> but it was, And we won the contest. I'll have to find a picture of that. Of course you won. That's a great (laughs) jack-o'-lantern. It was really cute. And then we had little characters like Ghostbusters around it, but we cut out our faces and put them on there. That is very elaborate for a pumpkin. Creatives, am I right? (laughs) So (laughs) Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman, they started working on the script together. And they decide that they want to set the film in a modern American city, but include elements of fantasy. And Ivan Reitman called this the domino theory of reality meaning that if they could just play things realistically from the beginning, like this is a real town, this is like everyday life, and then you introduce all these supernatural elements, people would believe that the Marshmallow Man could exist by the end of the film. And I just love that. Like that, I don't know, that creative thinking there of let's do it this way so people are really immersed into it. And this thing, this element, which is so wacky and would never exist in real life, it feels like a part of this real-life environment. Genius. Yes. So Reitman told Dan Aykroyd that they should bring in Harold Ramis, director of Caddyshack and National Lampoon's Vacation, and of course, Bill Murray's co-star in Stripes. You may recall Harold Ramis from the Bill Murray episode because they had a super, super close relationship. They were like brothers, but then eventually had a falling out that happened after this. So go listen to that. So they approached Ramus's office at the Burbank Studios, and according to them, Ramus just thumbed through the script, listened to their plans for the project, and after about 20 minutes, he just looked up and said, I'm in. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like, everyone's just like, this is bonkers, but let's do it. I love it. And he would not only become the, the film's co-writer, but also eventually the third Ghostbuster. Yes, I do recall that now that we're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So the three of them just go into overdrive to just deep dive into writing and drafting the script for shooting. They hold up in different offices. And then at one point, they even fled to Martha's Vineyard to focus on writing. So I thought you were about to say Martha Stewart's house. And I was like, whoa, why? I mean, like, kind of, in a way. So Snoop Dogg was there. Yeah. There were there were some things that they really had to focus on to fix the script. So they had to rework all of the now super iconic main characters to make them all stand out on their own. Because when they were writing the script, it was all just like, here are these four guys. But now they had people cast and they had to make them all unique in their own way. So they drew from a long history of Hollywood archetypes and uh, ghost comedies to guide them. So, for example, like all the different characters that they had they compared them to like the scarecrow and the lion and the tin man Ah. and different archetypes like that. And working on the plot, they cut out a ton of material, including just like a bunch of different storylines that they had written, including one about an illegally operated ghost storage facility at a deserted gas station. So there are some scenes that we never even got to see. And where do those scenes live? I want to see them. I know. 
in Dan Aykroyd's crazy brain. Yep. <laughs> but he was he was actually a really good sport about having all of his original vision torn apart because a lot of creatives aren't okay with that. And in fact, quick sidebar, uh, I've talked about this book before, I think, but John Cleese has a really lovely short book called Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide. And in it, he talks about how all good writers are able to kill their darlings. And what he means by that is that the dar- their darling is that one great idea that they really, really like, but it no longer fits well into their story because any good work of art will change over time when you're you know, drafting it and revising it. And sometimes it changes in major ways during the course of its creation. So when a project develops, parts of the stories change and that darling may not fit well into the new narrative. Much like startups, we go through that all the time. Right? Yeah, it's so true. It's like, oh, I don't want to let that go. But less experienced writers or perhaps just in business in general, they really want to hang on to that one idea but a great writer or business person will, will let it die. They accept it and move on. So I agree. I think that absolutely ties into not just writing, but creation in general, whether that's you starting a new business or a, a work of art. So moving on. Dan Aykroyd himself said, I'm a better originator than executor of a finished screenplay. I'm a kitchen sink writer. I throw everything in there. I've always relied on a collaborator to bring it to reality. So he also has some self-awareness. It's like, I'm just, yeah. this is all coming out of my brain. And I like to collaborate to work with someone who can take things and make it a reality. You know, the kitchen sink process is really, not to get us on a tangent, but it's a really interesting method that I feel like a lot of people utilize no matter what kind of thing they're creating. Like, I think of just random things that I have to write, you have to write, and typically it's easier to get all your thoughts on paper and then pare it back to make it make sense after that. But it's harder to like add things after the fact after you've already written it. So I totally agree with that method, whether it's right or not, who knows. Perfect example. Jess has tasked me with writing an article. (laughs) (laughs) That was supposed to be like, what, 600 words, if that? I think I'm on like 1200 and I go on a tangent about like Prometheus and like the Greek gods and Jess is like, I love you, but no. (laughs) But that's why we work well together is because we kind of do that method of let's throw it all out there and let's pair it back. Yep. And it's, it's effective. I mean, I think once mm -hmm. you're in that creative groove, like everyone knows that state of actual flow and how hard it is to get there. You just have a lot of thoughts that you want to get out. And it's so easy to edit. I was for sure in a flow. And in when I was writing, I was like, I know we're gonna have to cut this out, but I like have to get this out of my brain. Yep, so totally. <laughs> that no one will get to see my beautiful metaphor. <laughs> That's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But the, like, so that, that works for us, but it worked well for this team. Dan Aykroyd really excelled at creating funny situations, and Ramus's strength was more in writing strong jokes and really funny dialogue. So they would write separately and then rewrote each other's work. They would do it together separately. Uh, and, of course, Dan Aykroyd also served as the paranormal expert, <laughs> offering official-sounding official terms and uh, all the jargon to use in the film. 
I had no idea that he was like that. <laughs> no, clue. I knew he was like kind of into it, but I didn't know that it went back into his family for generations, and that he's like super, super serious about it. So wild. his family has written books, like they were actually in the paranormal industry and everything. As for our pal Bill Murray. Ramus was able to really capture his voice well after the two had worked together for so long. So, again, go back and listen to the Bill episode to hear about their relationship and the falling out because they were so close. They were like brothers, and that's how he was able to write in Bill Murray's voice because he knew exactly how snappy he was and like what things he knew Bill would make it punchy. And he knew but Bill yeah. would probably just go and say his own things anyway. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> He knew that Bill's a little bit of a loose cannon, which we'll touch on in, in a moment. But first, let's talk about the special effects, because Ooh. there are plenty in this film, but it was not easy to get those done. So by the time they get to filming, they face just this huge challenge, another huge challenge right from the start, because this new script called for nearly 200 special effects shots but the studio facilities were already being bogged down and consumed by other major projects going on at the time, including Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Return Whatever. of the Jedi. Ugh. Go away. So <laughs> another callback to a previous episode with Carrie Fisher, because she just, you know, she took all the special effects from Damn, Ghostbusters. Carrie, come on. <laughs> it actually wasn't Carrie, but that's okay. Well, and so, Carrie dated Dan Aykroyd. Oh my gosh. <gasps> goes all the way to the top so <laughs> so many degrees of separation here <laughs> yeah so ivan reitman proposes a wild solution let's just start our own effects house oh good god why not why not <laughs> sure why not just start a new business on top of trying to create a film so in a somewhat stroke of luck oscar-winning effects man richard edland he was famous for doing work on Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Poltergeist. He was already looking to set up his own shop. But in a stroke of bad luck, he ended up in the hospital after a back operation right when he got a call to do the movie. So he was like, I want to do this. I'm in. But also my back is all left up. So this is a great idea in theory, right? Like we're going to get what we need and we're going to do it all in house. But obviously it was a lot more work than they expected. They weren't just doing the special effects. They were building out a whole company. So by the time they got all of the contracts and legalities and everything set up, they only had 10 months to rebuild the studio, oh shoot the God. scenes, and then composite everything. That's crazy. Also, doesn't that feel like a startup too? Like, Yes. Oh, oh man. I feel like um, a shout out to our video production manager, Colton. I feel like he's the master of that. Like, making something magical on a short budget and short short deadlines like the stuff that our video team makes is just so cool some of our best content has come from like day of ideation and then they create yeah. it and edit it in the same day so the time you know, crunch is real you can you can create in a short amount of time if you have a vision mm -hmm. in the meantime associate producer michael gross says that he began assembling a team of designers and artists to create the supernatural cast of the film so all of the ghosts all of the i feel like i want to call them another term but it's really just ghosts specters i don't know <laughs> he lost me <laughs> hey jess how does a cucumber become a pickle i don't know kate how does it 
It goes through a jarring experience. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay, that joke is the worst. But you know what's not the worst? The world's leading flat rate creative services platform, aka Design Pickle. That's right. With a flat monthly fee, unlimited requests, and unlimited revisions, Adobe source files, we could go on and on. Design Pickle is an award-winning graphic design and creative services company. And you know what? Our listeners can get $100 off their first month of any Design Pickle plan by using the promo code WORST, all caps, at checkout. The promo code really should be BEST because that's a sweet deal. True that. That's a better joke. So when it came to casting the characters, let's just go over some of the wonderful cast members of this film. Starting with Sigourney Weaver, who I just adore. She was cast as Dana Barrett, the first Ghostbusters customer. And I love the story of her audition. So she went all out and acted out her rendition of a terror dog, which (laughs) is the creature that her possessed character turns into at the climax of the film. And she literally started to growl and bark and gnaw at the cushions and jump around. And the best part is Ivan Reitman cut the tape and said, don't ever do that again. (laughs) I love it. She really committed to it. She was extra and it worked. It's fine. Yep. Yep. Go Sigourney. Next up, Rick Moranis. Reitman had to then recast the role of the nerdy character, Louis Tully, who was originally conceived for John Candy, it turns out. Yeah, John Reitman had directed him in Stripes. So all of the early storyboards depicted John Candy, basically, uh, in his physique. But then Reitman said that when he showed John Candy the script, he said, I don't know about this. I could do it, but I think I should do it with a German accent. (laughs) (laughs) And he wanted... He wanted to be flanked by two big dogs. Like, these were his requests for the character. And they're like, "Mm, no. He had a vision. (laughs) He had his own vision for this role. It did not quite fit. So they just said, sorry, John, maybe next time. And at this point, Rick Manis had already made a name for himself by appearing in the Canadian comedy sketch show, Second City Television. So many people got their start there. So (laughs) he ends up calling Reitman and says, thank God Candy hates it. This is the greatest script I've ever read. So he's in. Great. Another callback. It was it was rumored that Eddie Murphy was considered for the fourth Ghostbuster, Winston Zedmer, but Reitman denies this and says that he was never a consideration. So I just hmm. want to throw that out there because he's another creative we've covered. Eddie, let and, us know if you were actually considered. Yeah, <laughs> tell us the rumors are true. He said that Zedmore, the character, needed to be a, kind of like a stand-in for the audience and something that could have like things explained to him. They wanted someone very lovable, and Ernie Hudson fit the bill. So rounding out the Ghostbusters inner circle was... Annie Potts as the eccentric secretary, Janine Melnitz. But Annie was a theater school actor, not improv. So this was a totally new experience for her. A, a lot of these guys and, and women were improv actors, and there was a lot of improv on set. But she said, if you get the ticket to get on the train, you take the ride. So she took the ride. Love it. 
So from the very start, Ivan Reitman said that he wanted this film to be his New York movie. And I recently learned that this is like a thing. I never heard this before until uh, I was watching something else. And they, there's like a phrase about your New York movie, your New York walk and talk. Like that's like a, a movie trope that a lot of actors kind of like strive for. They want to have their New York movie. Hmm. So Dan Aykroyd agrees with the suggestion, saying it's the greatest city in the world, and just, I mean, the architecture's perfect, and the city's gothic architecture just tied right into everything. They did embellish it a bit with some gargoyles and statues for added effect, but... Of course. New York City, man. Throw in a gargoyle or two. (laughs) Yeah, why not? On the first day of shooting, recalls personally delivering Bill Murray to wardrobe... And as we know, I mean, Bill Murray, man, you never know if he's going to show up or what he's going to say. And in fact, Reitman said, I still had no idea if he had even read the script at this point. (laughs) They are, it's first day of shooting. Typical. That sounds about right. (laughs) But then, I mean, Bill Murray, sometimes he just delivers and he walks out with Ramis and Aykroyd and they were all in full regalia that day walking down Madison Avenue and he just went crazy. They were in their <laughs> Ghostbusters costumes or their um the suits. Suits, sure. <laughs> Not like suit and tie, but like the hazmat suits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's be clear. Uh, associate producer remembers that Ivan turned to him and said, "This is going to be f- great." <laughs> iconic (laughs) and Sigourney Weaver recalls meeting Bill Murray for the first time on the set outside the New York Public Library she said I went over and I introduced myself and he said hello Susan and then he picked her up (laughs) put her over his shoulder and just walked down the block with her and she said that it was a great metaphor for what happened to me in the movie I was just turned upside down and I think I became a much better actress for it wow what a profound moment. <laughs> Hello, Susan. I can so hear him saying that, too. I know. What would you do if Bill Murray just came up to you and just, Hello, Jessica, and then picks you up, walks away? I don't know. That would be uh, the definition of an out-of-body experience. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Who are you going to call? Um, Bill. <laughs> Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> So when they're filming for this, the the team would just drive all over the city and they were shooting Ghostbusters total guerrilla style at just different iconic locations in the city. They tried to film at Rockefeller Center, which, of course, is privately owned. And Mm -hmm. in one scene, a security guard in the background is running them out. Turns out that's a real security guard who was (laughs) trying to get rid of them. And that made it into the film. Can you imagine just walking down Madison Ave or somewhere in New York and being like, uh, is that what I think it is? Is that Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray? Like, what's happening here? I mean, Hollywood, sh- Hollywood, they film and TV, they shoot stuff in New York all the time. They usually have closed sets or, yes. you know, they, sh- they close down the streets. But these guys were just like, we're just going to show up. And let's get the shot really quickly and then get out of here. This is great. I love it. Uh, and all these different landmarks became basically characters in the film. We see this a lot, I think, with, with certain cities and locations. They become a character, New York especially. And it documents a, a lot of like now lost landmarks, including the World Trade Center buildings 
and the original Tavern on the Green. Uh, represented from the New York Public Library, where the film's opening scenes were shot, says that imposter Ghostbusters have occasionally burst into the main reading room and just startled patrons reading there because they were so inspired by the film. Yep, that sounds about right for a Murray film. Yep. And speaking of Murray, given him and the team and all of their penchant for improv, it was a wild time both a, a gift and a challenge for the crew trying to keep up with it. Yeah. Rick Morana said, being on set was one of the great experiences of all time. The looseness was crazily fantastic. And Reitman said, what I learned is that I'd have to be nimble. <laughs> Again, call back to like startup life. You got to be nimble, man. Yep. Got to be nimble. Got to be quick. <laughs> got to jump over a candlestick. <laughs> he... <laughs> <laughs> Are we doing flat rate unlimited nursery rhymes now? <laughs> yeah, we are. It's a lot on. If you get our <laughs> scale graphic design, you get unlimited nursery rhymes included. This month only. <laughs> this month only. <laughs> Man, I just set that up. He added, I'd set up a scene for how it had been written. All the lighting, the blocking, and then Bill would have a brilliant idea. My job was to hold on to the brilliant script and yet work fast enough to take advantage of his brilliance. No, Bill. Love it. So all of this craziness and the shooting wrapped in February 1984, leaving the team with fewer than four months to edit and complete nearly 200 post-production effects. <laughs> Just so, 200. No, no biggie. Edlin and his team went to overdrive. They had all these different studios going at once, and he had he had they had like different locations, and he had a motorcycle, and he would just drive back and forth from one another. Oh, my God. He says that Reitman asked to add about 100 more shots with only two months left. At that point, he just, he said, I met him in the parking lot with my samurai sword. I don't know if that's <laughs> true or not, but, I mean, he says it like that actually happened. So, might have. Now, what I love is because it was all rushed and they had a limited budget, some of the effects ended up looking obviously handmade. But they ended up leaning into that, and it added to the charm of the film and added to the comedy. Agreed. So that also really reminded me of Design Pickle, because with this new campaign that we're working on right now with our pals at Bonjoro, we're using all green screens. It's a wild time, but we knew that the green screens weren't going to look perfect. So we're like, let's make it look intentionally kind of cheesy, and it works. It totally works, but it's hard to strike that balance. And it, I mean, Ghostbusters is a perfect example of that. One thing here or there could have made it like, uh, you guys are trying a little too hard with that. Yeah. And that throws off the whole vibe. Well, for example, the brain scanning device that Rick Moranis wears is obviously a kitchen strainer, but it's supposed to look shoddy. So I'm going to send you a picture of that right now. <laughs> I want to hear your reaction to it. I love it so much. Okay, I just oh sent over the, the brain scanner. <laughs> oh, I forgot how absurd it looks. <laughs> Me too. That was such a throwback. It's it's, so it's literally like a, a a strainer, like a pasta strainer, and it just has like it looks like a child's craft. Like they use a glue gun yeah. to just glue random pieces of plastic on top. It's like random coils on it that are definitely just old keychains. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> but it works because I, I just lean it because he's kind of like this neurotic, ah, uh, and it just adds to it. It adds to the humor, which is great. I love it. 
Now, despite all of this, the response to the first Ghostbusters screening was not encouraging. No, this is just the screenings, not the release. But the audience okay. was just straight up deadpan. <laughs> no one was they laughing. Were probably so confused. Yeah, yeah, they probably were. Like, what is happening right now? What's going on? <laughs> but when the movie actually came out, everything exploded. In the first week of its release, 1984, Ghostbusters broke Columbia's best opening weekend and best opening week records. Judd A- yeah. Judd Apatow, who first saw the film at age 16, said that you never heard people laugh like that, like they did when they were watching Ghostbusters in a packed theater. It was like a rock concert. There was a line down the block. So immediately it was that. like a cult hit. I love that Judd is the one that said that too. I know. And how it, I mean, it definitely influenced him. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why it was so successful is just because it crossed over so many different genres to reach different markets and audiences. Because it had that kind of sci-fi element, the supernatural, it's comedy, there's action, it has a little bit of everything. So it went on to gross over $238 million domestically and another $53 million overseas. But beyond that, it just had a whole legacy afterwards and a huge franchise. So, and this was kind of all inevitable given how popular it was. That included a video game, which I totally remember playing. There was a television cartoon (laughs) that was uh, the real Ghostbusters, and that ran from 1986 to 1991. There was the film sequel, Ghostbusters 2, and that starred all the original cast, and that one grossed more than $250 million. It didn't ever get like the exact enthusiasm the first film did, but it still it, it performed well. I don't know that I ever even saw that one. I definitely did, but I don't really really remember anything from it. Yeah, I don't recall. Yeah. And later this year, Jess, we will have another Ghostbusters film called Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yes, we will. Uh-huh. And this was scheduled originally to release in July 2020, but it was delayed three times, largely due to the pandemic. But it's now scheduled for release in November. But what I really, really love is that this is directed by Jason Reitman, who's Ivan's son. And this stars Carrie Coon, Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things, ah. McKenna Grace, Paul Rudd, while Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Ernie Hudson, Sigourney Weaver, and Annie Potts all reprise their roles from the original films. So I excited. love it. But wait, Paul Rudd is in this? I love yeah. it even more now. <laughs> Paul Rudd is in it. So uh, I think he's a little supernatural because that man just does not age. He really doesn't at all. So as we know, Bill Murray is notoriously difficult to book on any project. And of course, he took his sweet time before confirming that he would return to the Ghostbusters universe. But in the end, he uh, he agreed to do it. And mostly just because, I mean, he thought the, the project was really strong and he's super close with the Reitman family. So kind of sealed the deal. They just left a bunch of uh, voicemails on his 1-800 number. Yeah. <laughs> And they, you know, I'm sure he hasn't signed any papers. Who will see if he's even showed up? Like, who knows? TBD. Jason Reitman says of his father, if I think about who I'm making this movie for, it's my father. We all know what it's like to be told stories by our parents. I'm really honored to get a chance to tell one back to him from the world he brought to life. Oh. And so that, Jess, is the making and the aftermath and soon the afterlife of Ghostbusters. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I think the paranormal 
uh, Ackroyd family <laughs> is fascinating, and we could probably do a whole episode on them. <laughs> For real? We do a mashup I... of creatives and paranormal and just bring our things that we like together. Get spooky with I'm it. I'm here for it. I think it's so cool. I want. I definitely want to do a deep dive on Dan Aykroyd because he seems like a fascinating figure. I mean, he is a fascinating figure. But I want to know more about his paranormal activities. Same. And I honestly, I want to know more about Ghostbusters because I feel like we didn't even scratch the surface because there's no. so much going into it. Yeah, we, we might have to do another deep dive there, especially with the new movie coming out. But for now, that's all the time we have, and we'll be back next week with a full-length episode. Not sure what it's going to be about, because Jess is keeping it a secret from me. Per the usual. So not sorry about it. (laughs) (laughs) If you like the mini-episodes, let us know. If you have other people or other works that you'd be interested in hearing about, let us know. Podcast.designpickle.com. Hit us up on the Instagram or the Twitter, and uh, we'll be back next week. Yes, follow us on all the socials at Creatives Are the Worst or uh, at Worst Creatives on Twitter. You can get all those characters in there. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>